fuel. Fuel. You can, you know, at the, I guess at the local gas station, you can, you can test fuel for impurities. Um, you can rate different kinds of fuel according to their power, right? Um, you can do that, and you can, you can charge more for the good stuff. We know that. Um, basically, what Solomon is doing in the book of Ecclesiastes is he is testing. I mean, this is a comprehensive experiment, a project to test every kind of fuel that you and I use to power our lives, all right? In our search for uh, a piece of joy and some meaning and, 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 and some significance and, and freedom, we try different things. And Solomon has this very ambitious project in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he was uniquely qualified because of his money and because of his power as the king, because of his wisdom, qualified to pull this off, this project to test all of these kinds of fuel. So let's go to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're going to begin with a rather long reading. So Ecclesiastes chapter 8, the version I'm using is the New Living Translation. Starting in verse 2. Obey the king, since you vowed to God that you would. Don't try to avoid doing your duty, and don't stand with those who plot evil, for the king can do whatever he wants. His command is backed by great power. No one can resist or question it. Those who obey him will not be punished. Those who are wise will find a time and a way to do what is right, for there is a time and a way for everything even when a person is in trouble. Indeed, how can people avoid what they don't know is going to happen? None of us can hold back our spirit from departing. None of us has the power to prevent the day of our death. There's no escaping that obligation, that dark battle. And in the face of death, wickedness will certainly not rescue the wicked. I thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun, where people have the power to hurt each other. I've seen wicked people buried with honor, yet they were the very ones who frequented the temple and now are praised in the same city where they committed their crimes. This too is meaningless. When a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it is safe to do wrong. But even though a person sins a hundred times and lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be better off. The wicked will not prosper, for they do not fear God. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. And this is not all that is meaningless in our world. In this life, good people are often treated as though they were wicked. Wicked people are treated as though they were good. This is so meaningless. So I recommend having fun, because there's nothing better for people in this world than to eat, drink, and enjoy life. That way they will experience some happiness along with all of the hard work God gives them under the sun. Verse 16, in my search for wisdom and in my observation of people's burdens here on earth, I discovered that there is ceaseless activity day and night. I realize that no one can discover everything God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people discover everything, no matter what they claim. When I was a boy, 
I had different dreams uh, of what I would do when I grew up, you know. And being a preacher, for me, was not one of those dreams. I dream, You know, the f- typical fireman, policeman, that kind of stuff. But I also was fascinated with demolitions. You with me? I think most boys can identify with this. In fact, that's what we did with a lot of our free time as boys was demolish things. And I thought one of the coolest jobs ever would be to, to have the career of, of a wrecking ball operator. I mean, how much fun would that be? To take some old abandoned building or some house and just pull that giant steel ball back, release it, and crash and destroy and demolish that old building. I thought that would be, would be wonderful. Well, Solomon here kind of one-ups me. I mean, he really does. Um, he is a philosophical wrecking ball operator, and he will pull that wrecking ball back chapter after chapter after chapter in the book of Ecclesiastes, and he will let it go, and he will knock down everything that is too weak to stand, which up to this point in chapter 8 is, is about everything. I mean, some people trust in, they build their lives out of a love of money, out, out of ambition to get ahead, to succeed, to, to impress other people, um, out of pleasure, out of sex, out of, out of um, whatever addiction you want to name, out of a relationship. They build their life on that. Solomon keeps pulling the wrecking ball back, lets it go, and and smiles as it trashes those constructions that we build, those, those things that we use to build our lives out of. The first example that he uses this morning, remember in his time, government was a monarchy. So the first thing that he talks about when he, when he analyzes what people build their lives out of, what people trust, trust their lives on, what they, what they look to for solutions, he talks about the government, all right? The government. Um, now people, what I want you to keep in mind as we work through this, people will look to one of two places in order to find significance or to find help for their lives. People will either either look externally, they'll look on the outside for places like government or human institutions or a good friend or a loan from a bank. They will look on the outside to try to find help, right? Or they will try to find it on the inside, within themselves. Obviously, he begins by talking about those who are looking outwardly. In chapter 8, he begins by saying some people look to the government, look to human institutions to solve their problems. And he says, hey, kings have power. I should know I'm a king, you know. Um, They have power. They can do some things. They can resolve some situations, but be careful. When you approach a king, because there are two sides to this power. They might decide to help you out. They might decide to throw you in jail. Kings have power. They have a judicial system that backs their word. They have an army that backs their word. They have the power of taxation that backs what they decide. So in verse 4, he says, yeah, a king's words are backed by great power. But then he says, be smart. Be smart about how you engage a king. Because it can be a dangerous gamble for you. Be smart. In the end, though, 
He pulls the wrecking ball back when he thinks about government, lets it go, and despite all of the power the king has, the monarchy, the government just kind of topples as a place to look to, to build your life upon. He says in verse 7, no one knows the future. Nobody knows what's going to happen in 10 years or 10 days or 10 hours. No one knows the future, including the king. All right? I mean, the king could do an excellent job uh, administering justice and, and leading the country toward prosperity, using wisdom and benevolence. The king could do all of that. But, for example, the king has no control over the natural world, verse 8. He cannot choose whether or not there will be a drought in the land and there will be a massive food shortage. He cannot choose whether or not there will be flooding that will destroy half of his king. He cannot choose whether or not there will be an earthquake. A king has no power whatsoever over those forces. And then, that great equalizer that Solomon generally pulls out after he's knocked most everything down just to kind of clear everything else out, death. Not even the king has power over death, his own death. Didn't choose when he was going to be born, will not choose when he is going to go out. So ultimately, the king comes out looking a lot like the commoner. Neither chose where and when they were born, neither chooses when and where they will die, neither has any real power over the natural world. I think it's a good thing that Solomon lived before the concept of democracy had had really taken off, don't you? Um, You know, Obama's slogan last time around, I think this time around, is change you can believe in. Um, I think Romney and Ryan are using this phrase, uh, America's comeback team. Solomon, if he's running for office in the book of Ecclesiastes, his bumper sticker says, Solomon 2012, meaningless. Right? Don't get a lot of votes with that, Solomon. Good, good time to be king, not such a good time to have to run for popular election. I, by the way, have you ever noticed, one of the strange things about America is every four years, we get the opportunity to choose between two candidates for United States president. Why is it that we only get two choices when, like, for Miss America, you get, like, 50 choices, you know? I don't know. It's just one of the things that always kind of bothered me. All right. So, power. Some look to outside sources. Um, they want to plug into power from outside. The king, um, the, the, the president, the local power broker, um, and they will look to answers for their problems, for their situations from these external sources. But when it comes to power, some inte- intrepid men and women will look to, not to human institutions, but will look to the power that comes from within, right? They will project power from within themselves to try to change their world into their image, right? Into the world they want to exist. So they'll come from the inside out. They will use other people. They will manipulate other people. They will protect their power. They will project their power. And they will create this world that they 
want, that they imagine. We live certainly in a culture and a time and place that celebrates these kinds of people. We call them movers and shakers. Solomon says, you know, guys, here's my two cents on this. Verse 9, I thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun where people have the power to hurt each other. To hurt each other. So he sums up this idea of, of me projecting my power from the inside out. Me projecting my power onto the people around me. And he sums it up kind of with three words. People get hurt when we do that. Some people are better at this than others. Some people have better diplomatic skills than others. Have more tact. More, more ability to manipulate those around them. But, but in the end... Anyone who is trying to project their selfish agenda on those around them is a bully. All right? Now, let me share something here that's important. You think, wait, don't leaders do that? Don't leaders have a vision and try to shape things? Well, there's a big difference between a leader and between um, someone who manipulates other people, and that is motive, all right? That's motive. Um, Projecting my power from the inside out, attempting to mold the world around me through manipulation um, is one thing. Serving those around me, guiding them, shepherding people into what God wants for them, into God's vision for them, that's leadership. Now, I love this part. I talked about this a little bit last week, hits it again this week. There are those that instead of trying to manipulate everybody else through through force or through money or bribes or whatever, they will try to influence everyone else into believing that they are really a great person, a spiritual person, a religious person, a hero, a humanitarian, a philanthropist. And so they do this, and he says, you know, I've seen this over and over And in verse 10, he tells us, I have seen with my own two eyes how a a man or woman has been able to snow everybody into thinking they are a great person, right? Everyone shows up at their funeral, and there are these beautiful eulogies and a great obituary in the Jerusalem Post. I mean, everyone is is, is drinking the Kool-Aid that this person was, was like Mother Teresa or something. And he says, you know what? I have known some of those people personally, and they're bad people, right? They cheat on their wife. They, <laughs> they kick their dog, but everyone seems to think they're some sort of saint. He says, I've seen that. And so there's this illusion, there's this meaninglessness to convincing others that I'm really a great person. Bottom line, when you get down to it, a lot of the choices about the fuels that we use to power our lives with, our choices about how we're going to construct our lives, out of what materials we're going to construct our lives, reveal a a dirty little secret. That, that I think I'm smarter than God. That I think I'm smarter than God. I mean, yeah, I, I know what his word says, but I think I'm going to go over here and try it my way. I'm going to do things a little bit differently. And the only way I can think that I'm smarter than God, is, well, there's, I guess there's two ways. First, I can imagine that God 
doesn't exist. There is no spiritual reality. This material world is all there is. So yeah, I'm smarter than God because he doesn't exist. Or is to believe that God has sort of checked out. God got everything started and now he's checked out. He has no involvement in the world whatsoever. So, so yeah, I'm smarter than God. I know, I know what's going on in my life and, and I'm going to try to resolve my own problems. Um, and there is a view that's prevalent. I, I guess it always has been, but it, it's, if, if you want the philosophical term, it's called materialism, all right? It is the idea that everything that's real is material, is physical, all right? So whatever actually exists, whatever is real, you can kind of interface with that using your five senses. You know, your touch, your smell, your, your, your hearing, your eyesight, um, those sorts of things. You can use your five senses. You can access the entire real universe, um, and, and, and people believe that. They're called materialists. But when you ignore the spiritual reality, the spiritual dimension, and a lot of people do, you put essentially a ceiling on your life. You can't get above a certain place. Um, you put limits on yourself that God never intended for you to put on yourself. And so you can ignore the spiritual dimension. That's a choice that you have. But you really kind of have to work hard to do it. You really kind of have to work to say there is no spiritual dimension to life. Because when you look at the world... You act as though every day, you act as though there are some moral, spiritual realities going on. I mean, after all, murder and rape and incest, those things are illegal and we think they should be. But from a strictly material standpoint, if there is no spiritual truth, no moral truth, there's no reason to believe that stuff, but we believe it. And so you can claim to be a materialist, you can claim not to believe in the spiritual dimension, but you live like there is. You live like there is. You certainly want to marry someone who believes there is a spiritual dimension. And they need to honor the vows that they keep with you and that sort of thing. Um, so don't get me wrong. The material world is, is very valuable. I mean, you want a medical doctor who understands medical science. Who understands the, the, the material reactions and their interactions between chemicals and between tissue and all that stuff. You, you know, we need biologists, we need economists, we, we, we need good politicians. It's useful even to know how to make money, um, how to understand. So all these things that have to do with understanding how the material world works are important. But there is only one dimension that you can take beyond the grave, and that is the spiritual dimension. And you can only access, according to Solomon, according to the entire Bible, you can only access your full potential as a human being, a being that is not merely physical. You can only access that through God. You can only access that through having faith in God and moreover faith in Jesus Christ. And so Solomon says in verse 13, he touches on this. He says, the wicked will not prosper. They do not fear God either doesn't think he's real or doesn't think he's going to do anything. They do not fear God. Their days will never grow long like evening shadows. So Solomon says at some point, those who ignore the reality of the spiritual world, or in his words, do not fear God, at some point, the gig is up. The wrecking ball will collide with their life, and they will have nothing. 
You may have heard the name Francis Collins or read some of his stuff, uh, and if you haven't, I would recommend that you get on Amazon.com, go to your bookstore, and buy his book, um, The Language of God, bestseller, New York Times, all that kind of stuff. Um, he is an interesting cat, all right? First of all, he is pretty much always the smartest guy in the room. He is director of the National Institute of Health. He, is, he was the director, and, and I suppose still is, of the Human Genome Project that mapped the entire human genome. Enormous project oversaw thousands of scientists worldwide that were working on mapping the DNA and everything in human beings and successfully completed that. Now, going into the next stage, ta- uh, looking at how to manipulate that and, and cure some diseases and things like that. Very smart guy, right? is a medical, has an MD, also has a PhD, um, bright, bright guy. Um, You can get on YouTube and watch this guy lecturing at Yale before all of their science faculty and students in a packed auditorium, so packed that they had to like do closed circuit TV and other places so people could listen to him because he likes to not only do science, but he likes to talk about how he is a person of faith and a scientist, right? He wasn't always. In fact, until he was 27 years old, or for most, most of his adult life there, he was a dyed-in-the-wool atheist. But then, like I said, he got an MD, and so part of his med school, he's interacting with some patients. He's doing his residency and stuff, and he, he, he talks about how he couldn't deny the physical evidence before him that faith was making a difference in the lives of his patients. It made him ask some questions about his faith, about his atheistic faith. And he began to realize there is a dimension to life that is not material. And he writes about it and he talks about it. Listen listen to some of the things he says here. He says, I believe that God had a plan to create creatures with whom he could have fellowship. In whom he could inspire the moral law. In whom he could infuse the soul And who he would give free will as a gift for us to make decisions about our own behavior. A gift which we often utilize to do the wrong thing. And so here he is, you know, Collins who who has come to this point where he realizes there's more than simply what the five senses offer. Than what the material world offers And he began to understand he did not have to turn off his scientific mind in order to engage this other vital dimension of life. And I like how Solomon puts this. Solomon was also a man of science and philosophy who had a deep faith in God. Solomon says in verse 17 of this chapter, I realized, you know, I came to realize here that no one can discover Everything God is doing under the sun. Not even the wisest people discover everything. No matter what they claim. That's a great truth there. It's this truth that while we may not be able to discover everything God is up to. He is on the move under the sun. He is at work in the world. He didn't just wind things up and get them started and then check out. He didn't just do the big bang and then retire. God is at work in the world. If you have faith, you begin to see ways in which God is at work around you. 
You see in ministries of mercy, the gospel powerfully touching the world. Um, You see people breaking free from addictions by the power of God, or they may call it their higher power, right? Um, You see um, young people like the Preston Crest youth who go off to, to the Appalachian Mountains and donate their time to serve those in need. You see God at work in the world. Now, Here's the question you should be asking, okay? Wait a second. If there is this kind of material dimension and and God is a spiritual being, how, you know, how is that working? How can God interact with the material world or how does this work when you've got a spiritual dimension and a material dimension? Jesus. Jesus. That's the answer. The incarnation of God, physical incarnation of God. Um, The Son of God turns into the Son of Man. God is born into the world. He interacts and He forever changes the world. And He tells us in His last words in the book of Matthew, I'm not done, I'm with you until the end of the age. And I love this description, powerful description in, in the book of Colossians. Listen to this description of, of how Jesus brings God into the world, right? Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, over all created stuff. By him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. They were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness Dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So, okay, the book of Ecclesiastes can look a little bit depressing. Um, It's depressing because the focus, right, the approach Solomon takes is let's imagine a world without God, where faith isn't a factor. Let's think of that kind of world. So it becomes a, a sort of depressing book as you turn the pages of this book. But he wants to show us that at every turn, like every fuel that we use, Every choice that we make, he wants to show us that if those choices, if those turns are not made, are not lived out in the presence of God, with the fear of God, with an awareness of the presence of God, all those turns are dead ends. They don't lead anywhere. That's what he's doing in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's a dead end, that's a dead end. Wrecking ball, boom, that falls over, that falls over. And in chapter 8, God shows up and God interrupts this cycle of cynicism and doubt. And then in the New Testament, through Jesus, in a direct and physical way, Jesus interrupts this cycle of dead ends. 
doesn't he? So I guess the question coming out of Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is a question, are you willing to let God interrupt? Are you willing to open the eyes of faith and let God show up in your world? Will you build your life on God or continue to hope that things will kind of work out building a life without God? When the wrecking ball smashes against you or your family, will there be a faith component to your life, a strong, vibrant faith component or not? And guess what? A wrecking ball will, at some point or another, smash against you or your family. A loved one dies suddenly. Someone you care about, maybe even you, is diagnosed with terminal illness. The police knock on your front door and have news about your child. Look, I mean, the wrecking ball is going to hit at some point or another. Will your life hold together without God? Solomon says, mm mm, it won't. And one thing. <laughs> One thing about the wrecking ball, look, it never yells duck before it hits. <laughs> I mean, it just, it just hits. It collides with your life. It just crashes in. So God designed a spiritual component to life, a faith component into us that when life hits, when the wrecking ball impacts your life, this component will enable you to survive. And in many cases, actually in hindsight, you will see that you thrived because of this faith component. We have lots of testimonials in this room of how this works. Um, We're going to close out with this story from John Stott. Not John Scott, but John Stott. One of my favorite authors. Maybe you guys have read some of his stuff before, but he shares a story, and I think we have our stories too, uh, of how you know everything was going um, according to plan, wrecking ball hits, and then the faith component showed up. God showed up. He talks about a, um, an evangelistic campaign that he was conducting down in Australia decades ago. So he's leading this campaign, and it's for college students. And he says, a day before the final meeting, he received word that his father had passed away. In addition to that, he was losing his voice. And here's how he describes what happened. He says, it was already late afternoon, within a few hours of the final meeting of the mission. So I didn't feel like I could back away at that time. I went to the great hall and I asked a few students to gather around me and one of them read from 2 Corinthians 12, 8 to 9, one of them read, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He says, a student read these verses and then I asked them to lay their hands on me and pray that these verses might be true in my experience. When the time came for me to give my address, I preached on the broad and narrow ways in Matthew chapter 7. I had to get within a half inch of the microphone, and I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move 
I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in monotone. Then when the time came to give the invitation, there was an immediate response. Larger than any other meeting during that mission, students came forward responding to the gospel. He says, I've been back to Australia about ten times since then, and on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember that final meeting in the university in that great hall? I jolly well do, I replied. Well, they say, I was converted that night. Stott concludes, The Holy Spirit takes our human words, spoken in great weakness and frailty, and He carries them home with power to the mind and the heart, the conscience and the will of the hearers in such a way that they see and believe. God is on the move in this world, and I'll share with you my experience just briefly, and and I've heard this echoed from ministers of the gospel um, on various occasions. It's my experience that those mornings or evenings when I feel like I flopped, (laughs) when I feel like, boy, that was not my finest hour, when I feel like that message, it just didn't connect like it was supposed to, it seems to me like every time that happens, that is the moment where the week after I get a handwritten note or I get an email or somebody sends me a message on Facebook and says, that was for me. The Holy Spirit spoke directly to me through that message. It's like every time. Under the sun, I get goosebumps thinking about that, how God does that, how He shows up. Under the sun, God is at work 